Hello and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity podcast. I'm Christine Burns and this week I'm featuring the third in a series of excerpts from a Department of Health conference that took place at the end of May in Nottingham on LGBT mental health. In the previous episodes, you'll have heard from Sarinda Sharma, the National Director of the Equality and Human Rights Group in the Department of Health, and then perspectives from Professor Anne Rogers and Tim Franks. In this final excerpt, I'm featuring my own presentation, which dealt with the issues facing trans people. One of the challenges with talking about trans people's issues in health is that every presentation still needs to contain an awful lot of basic introductory material before you can get down to the question of how to structure care paths, provide people with choice, timely referrals and so forth. This is something you don't need to do for lesbian and gay people. You don't have to explain who lesbian women are or that they're not mentally ill just for being who they are. The need to explain fundamentals is a particular problem when you're asked to contract a presentation to 20 minutes or less. One day I hope I'll detect an audience where I don't need to start with Trans 101 and a presentation can focus on improving rather than simply justifying services. I particularly look forward to the day when I don't need to denounce the unlawful behaviour of a primary care trust in the city where I'm lecturing. Right, well, good afternoon. I hope you can all hear me clearly. As Claire said, my name's Christine Burns, and I've got the job, I suppose, of the warm-up act for the afternoon to wake you all up after lunch. Um, I'm just going to explain very briefly why we've actually changed around the speaker order, because rather sadly, I've got to attend my mother's funeral tomorrow, and I need to go off to sort out my family this evening, so I want to run away straight after my presentation. But I was insistent on coming today because... um, (sighs) of the great importance of covering the issue of trans people in healthcare, um, and there's too many people riding on, on this to, uh, to put one's personal affairs uh, too much to the fore. Um, just to start us off very quickly, and I'm, I'm going to have to rush because I'm uh, going to condense the 30-minute presentation, hopefully into 20, so you've got time for, 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 uh, for questions afterwards. Um, I just want to start by just something that I always start with in presentations like this. I'd just like you all to think about somebody you know. Um, not somebody you know intimately well, but just somebody you know fairly well. Um, you got somebody? Good. Um, and then I'd like you to think about putting a gender on that person. Are they a man or a woman? Now, I'm not going to get you long to think about that because that shouldn't take you too long. But I'll ask you the question, have you ever seen that person's genitals? Come on, we usually get a bigger laugh than that. (laughs) It's a rather nervous laugh. Because the point is, and the reason I do this, great, we're waking up, you see it's working. Um, The reason I do this is to emphasize the fact that in day-to-day living, in fact, we don't gender people according to what's between their legs. We take people according to what we see and what they say that they are. And that's vitally important. It's a a core thing towards actually understanding what transgender people are all about. Because they're about, they're not about genitals. And I really wish that healthcare for trans people wasn't entirely fixated upon their genitals. It's about people's identity. 
because for me, I'm a trans woman, I'm a transsexual woman. Um, and I always say that, you know, sorry, you, you, I'm not going to tell you much about my genitals unless you're planning to sleep with me. <laughs> and, and actually, I'm sorry, but I can't see you very well, but as far as I can see, none of you have got any chance. So. <laughs> But, you know, if anybody wants to, wants to uh, petition me afterwards, you may. Um, but the point is, is that... Um, I forgot my point now. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, yes, it will, don't we, won't it? Yes, is that we've got to stop thinking about trans people in terms of genitals and thinking about them in terms of identity. Because the reason why it's important to me to present to you as a woman and for you to see me that, that way without question is simply because that's who I am inside. If I had to explain each time, you know, that if you taught me to be a man, and I had to explain, but I don't work or think that way, well, none of us would ever have any communication. It would be an uphill battle. And that's not a livable situation. And that's why the facilitation of people being able to live, in truth, according to their gender role, is so important. So it's not about... Genitals. It's not about sexualizing people. It's about recognizing that fundamental need. And if you were on the wrong side of it, you'd understand that fundamental need. Why that fundamental need is so great that if people are thwarted, then they do feel suicidal. And, that, and their situation becomes, very rapidly becomes a crisis. Let's see how all this technology works then. So... What sort of people are trans people? Well, well these are all trans people. Um, and if I just flick through them very quickly with speed, this lady uh, is a general practitioner. This lady, I think this is great, this one, she flies 767s for a living. Um, and for anybody who's ever been on one of those planes where the pilots come on, you've detected a female voice and you see the people who look like they're looking worried just because a woman is driving the plane. Um, you should hope... But actually, this actually underlines the point, because also, if you think that trans people are mentally ill, well, that doesn't work, does it? Because she's trans, and we're letting her fly a 767 with 300 people on board. So it's, that's clearly not right either. Uh, this gentleman, and there's another point, that trans isn't just about people going from male to female, it's about people going both ways. And the more that we understand about trans people and the more we remove the barriers that keep people uh, from their identities and actually even afraid to come out to themselves, the closer we come to realising that it's coming towards one-to-one. Um, uh, even as recently as 1993, I remember somebody writing in The Guardian saying nobody would ever want to, to become a man. Sorry, yes, nobody would ever want to become a man. Well, they're obviously wrong. This lady is an MP, now, you might think that she could be, she could have a mental health problem, I suppose, but uh, <laughs> she's the world's first transsexual MP in the world, and she's, uh, she um, has held that position and been re-elected several times in, uh, in New Zealand. Uh, this lady plays uh, the jazz bass. Um, and this lady on the end is, is a golfing professional, and she has the unfortunate position that every time she wants to take part in a new professional circuit, she has to enter the same argument over and over again with the organisers about whether she is female enough to compete as a woman. So what have we got? This gentleman is again a, a trans man who uh, is carrying on his family tradition of being a steel worker. 
And then there are people like myself and uh, my colleague Stephen Whittle who are making an increasing business now out of pretending people's weddings. So that's why I'm in a hat. <laughs> but those people all look rather nice and ordinary. So it's actually strange then to move on to realise that this is, a, this is an American website which charts the number of transsexual people who have been murdered simply for being transsexual. It runs at the rate of around about one a month on average. Transsexual people are, in America, 25 times more likely to be murdered than any other group in society. We're thinking about that. It's certainly not something you therefore do as a result of um, just thinking, oh, how can I piss society off today? Oh, I know, I'll just change gender. It doesn't work that way. Um, I'm going to have to race through these slides because of the time, but uh, um, they will all be available on the website. And there are not lots of numbers as we go into this presentation. So uh, it will be worth you actually downloading those because in, in this amount of time, I'm not going to have the opportunity to go through all of those numbers. Um, but just as I said before, well, let's get this clear. Being trans, having a gender identity that doesn't accord with the genitals that the midwife spotted when you arrived in the world, is not a mental illness. It's simply a way of being different. Just as, as I look around, none of you are just two heights. None of you are just two colours. None of you are just two levels of intelligence. Nobody's just nice or nasty. That's diversity for you. Nature doesn't like, you know, if, if nature believed in, in binaries, we'd only ever have one kind of fish and one kind of mammal. But actually, you know, we have hundreds of different kinds of fish and hundreds of different kinds of mammal. Nature loves diversity. It loves it in making all of you look completely unique so that you're recognisable. So why should we think that gender's any different? Why do we believe that it's only exactly male or female? That's actually underlined by the fact that up to one in a hundred people, perhaps even more than one in a hundred people, are born with some kind of intersex condition. Now, physical intersex conditions are all relatively rare. They're sort of at the level of perhaps one in 5,000, generally speaking. But there's 70 different types of them, or seven, more than 70 different kinds. So combine those together, and over one in a hundred people has an intersex condition. That means in the average street in the United Kingdom, there is one person who isn't quite as male or female as everybody expects them to be. But of course, because of the um, stigma that is attached to any kind of uh, variance like this, it's hidden. We deal with it by spotting differences, if we can, when people are born. And there's a rule, which is literally a rule of thumb. If you come out with something that pokes out of you, that's about the length of my thumb, then um, if it's slightly longer than that, somebody will try and turn you into a boy. And if it's slightly shorter than that, they'll turn you into a girl, irrespective of what all the other factors are. So, but just let's get, continue getting this into context, because although being transgender is not a mental illness, clearly there is a big uh, requirement for support for transgender people in a deeply hostile world. And so we need to make that differentiation. But actually, if you want to pathologize anything, then looking at those murder statistics, you know, I think the thing to pathologize is the attitude of society towards difference. It's not the, the act of being transgender. 
And if you want to characterise the way in which mental health services need to interact with trans people, it's actually in terms of understanding that they're, uh, if they've got depression or if they need support, it's not because they're transgender. It's because they are the recipients of some of the most remarkably vicious discrimination and harassment experienced by anybody in our society. Because unfortunately, lots of us actually can disappear if we choose to do so. I stand out because it's my job to do so. But even then, sometimes, you know, when I've been registering my mother's death this week, I've not gone around saying, oh, by the way, did you know I'm transsexual? Because you don't want to do that. Let's do some statistics, otherwise I'll completely run out of time. Um, that top figure, I'm actually going to contradict myself because that's the figure we've officially agreed a few years ago when we were beginning to work on the Gender Recognition Act. But as you'll see in a moment, those numbers simply don't concur with what we're actually seeing on the ground in practice. But the rest of the numbers are actually based upon a study that was carried out and published in February 2007 for the Equalities Review. And the numbers are really quite remarkable. The one I particularly want to pick out for you is just before the bottom. The 6% of those 870 people who said they had been refused health care. Now, I find that absolutely remarkable. And just take that study into mind, by the way, because studying 870 people in a population estimated to be about 5,000 is the equivalent of doing a study on the rest of the population which asked 15 to 18 million people. So this is a pretty um, definitive kind of study. And it also gives the lie to anybody in the past who's claimed that they, can't, uh, they don't know how to treat trans people or make provision for them because there's inadequate data. People always claim that they can't find trans people to study. Well, we found them very easily on the basis of trust. They are there, and people don't mind being studied if they can actually see that there's a positive advantage and that the meaning behind the study is, is relevant. It's not like the studies we've actually seen in the past in my lifetime where some clinicians dealing with trans people are actually more interested in measuring the length of our fingers because that was an interesting thing to do a study on. That had zero outcome benefit for the trans people. It told us nothing about their discrimination. It told us nothing about how to treat them. But it was a jolly interesting thing to do if you're bored and running a gender identity service. Let's look at some other numbers, and uh, then we'll move on to something else. Um, we're now getting more numbers because people are in measurable situations. Since the Gender Recognition Act came into force in April 2005, we have somebody who's actually counting trans people applying for legal recognition. And so far, um, I get these figures from the Secretariat every few months, and I don't like to pass past them too often, so... My last figures fell for the end of March. But you'll see that already around about 2,400 people have applied for legal recognition of their gender. And now that this process has been running for around about three years, the numbers are actually settling down to a constant rate. So that we know that about three, 30 people a month are applying for legal recognition. And on the sausage machine principle of what goes in must come out, that also means that roughly speaking, 30 people a month must be completing their gender reassignment treatment. Now, that number on its own would be quite useful in terms of commissioning 
uh, facts. But there's another one as well, because if you don't ask the gender clinics, then you get a different story. Overall, if you add the 500 or so patients who are dealt with by the Charing Cross Gender Identity Clinic, which deals with around 90% of cases in the UK, and then if you add in the 300 who are dealt with by the primary uh, uh, private service, and then you take in about 70 or 80 who are dealt with every year by a service that's based in Sheffield, and about 20 who I think dealt with in Leeds and uh, a handful elsewhere, you arrive at a figure that is at least 900 per year. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about these numbers, but it's important to understand that there's a difference between counting the number of transsexual people you think there are in society, because that's important because you base overall service provision on that. On that. And for heaven's sake, don't just think of transsexual people in terms of gender reassignment treatment. You know, that takes two or three years of somebody's life. We've got entire lives after that. And when I go to see uh, my doctor with a boil, I want him to see the boil, not the fact that I'm a transsexual woman. But actually, too often, we see the opposite. We see, I I have a colleague who was referred to a hospital um, specialist for a, a problem with her knee. The first two paragraphs of the referral letter referred to her transsexual status, and only belatedly did the GP manage to remember to actually refer to the fact that she'd got a knee problem. So I'm not going to labour over these statistics. I say you can study them at greater length. Uh, there's an awful lot of law now protecting trans people, and that reflects the fact that there's been an awful lot of litigation resulting from an awful lot of harassment and discrimination. It didn't come about by accident. Um, ones to particularly pull out are the case of RV Northwest Lancashire Health Authority. Now, this case in 1999 was the one that established that transsexual people have a right to treatment on the NHS and also established that the kind of treatment that we see practiced in gender clinics like Charing Cross of, um, if necessary, involving uh, physical gender reassignment is the appropriate reaction. Because we've had several decades, up to 50 years of people trying to cure trans people of being uh, being trans. You might as well try to cure somebody of being a conservative or or of... being a, a train spotter or anything, anything that is just who we are. You're not going to, tra- you're not, you might keep it in abeyance. All of which actually makes it rather remarkable and it's very sad that we're actually on this soil and I do apologise for anybody who I may feel uncomfortable by this. But I'm going to quote from a recent newspaper article. This is somebody who actually lives in Nottingham and has been refused funding for treatment. Um, Nottinghamshire Primary Teaching Healthcare Trust's Director of Public Health told the newspaper the current policy on gender reassignment was adopted in July last year. He confirmed that the PCT would not routinely fund the drugs or surgery for patients requiring gender reassignment, but will fund any psychological support required. So that's remarkable because actually that's unlawful. There's no, but, there's no two buts about it. That is unlawful. And yet, 10 years after that case, it's still going on. And it's going on because people are still persisting in misunderstanding what trans people are about. That last piece of legislation is to trans people the equivalent of the uh, the legislation that was tacked on the back of the Equality Act for um, gay and lesbian people. 
It makes it an offence to discriminate against uh, trans people in the supply of goods and services. That came into effect in April this year. But before then, last year, when the gender equality duty came into force, that included transsexual people as well. And it means that, for instance, if you haven't got the data on which to decide in equality impact assessment whether you are, your, your policy is going to negatively affect trans people, then it's no good saying, oh, you know, we'd love to know, but you, can, you, know, you can't find these people, you can't get the data. You have to find out. And if the worst comes to the worst, you know, come and speak to people like me and my colleagues. We're available. We're not hidden. We're out there somewhere. There are a number of problems that people encounter. You can see some of these. They're all bound up. Ironically, actually, you notice that one that isn't on the list there is the actual gender clinic services themselves. There are some problems with some of those, but the largest clinic has actually been doing tremendous work in the last couple of years to clean up its act and actually improve a great deal. I want to focus, though, because I've only got a few seconds, on this GP aspect. And I'm going to go back to that equalities review research we mentioned before. Because out of those 870 people polled, as I said before, just over 6% of them said they were refused treatment outright. Now, maybe that's not too big a problem if you live in a city like Nottingham. But if you live out in the country and you're refused treatment by your GP, where do you go? And in any case, I'm paying for those GPs like the rest of you. And they're not contracted by the NHS to pick and choose who they fancy treating. The only time when a GP has that right is in connection with the services under the Abortion Act. In all other respects, GPs don't have the luxury of picking and choosing who they approve of and who they don't approve of. But look at the further statistics. Another 13.2%, so that makes up over 20% overall, felt that their, their treatment within the health service was affected by people knowing that they're trans. So that means when I move and go to another GP... I might find I'll land with one of those. Of the other 80%, which is good, and, you know, let's be positive, I mean, at least there's a majority who aren't doing those things, but 60% of those GPs in that 80% said they lacked the knowledge. Well, we've actually taken that excuse away now because if you've been picking the, the brochures off the, off the trestle outside, you'll know there's a tremendous amount of resources now available for, for GPs. So it's certainly not an excuse anymore for people to say, no, we didn't know. It's their duty, under the gender equality duty, to find out and to know and to give people a fair and equal service. There's more research. We're not simply relying on that one study for the Equalities Review. This uh, study was actually repeated, basically the same research, but on a Europe-wide level. So instead of polling the population from 60 million Britons, we went out to 493 million Europeans. We translated the 100-question survey into 13 languages, and we recruited networks across Europe to be able to reach people and actually interview them as well. Again, I'll leave you to read the, the quotes when you, when you look at the slides on the website. But here are some quotes to particularly pick out. When they're seeking treatment to transition, trans people will start a medical process which reduces every aspect of their life, and in particular their health, down to the most minimal of issues, their trans health. Surviving transition, actually, you know, we should give people medals for that. 
Because what happens when people come out is that they tend to lose everything they know overnight. They certainly get themselves on the wrong side of social, social approval. They may lose their family. They may become divorced. They may lose their house. They may lose access to their children. They most, may quite probably lose their job in spite of the legal protection that they have. Take any two of those. That's normally considered sufficient to project anybody into uh, clinical depression. Trans people routinely survive the whole lot. So they're pretty emotionally stable people. And all they actually really want is some support from you. And not two years after they've applied for it. Because the crisis actually really begins when you come out to yourself, when you admit to yourself that you're trans. You may have been bottling it up for years. You keep that part of you down. You try to pretend otherwise. Anything, because you know what the consequences are going to be. So you come out to yourself and then you visit your GP. And the GP turns out to be one of those who say, oh, I'm not treating you, you're dirty, filthy. But even if you find the nice GP, if the GP says, well, you know, I'm sorry, you're living in Nottinghamshire, we know the the policy here is that, well, probably you're going to get seen in God knows when. In other parts of the country, we've dealt with situations where people were expecting to have to wait two years and they're still not seen a specialist. So there's crisis started two years ago, and they have had no support whatsoever. This isn't about shipping people off to distant gender identity clinics. This is about providing basic support, which they should expect at the pointed end of care, in primary care, and they're not getting it. So if there was, a fo- you know, if there was one priority I had to identify, it would be, it would be that. Just more quotes. They all, they all really tend to add up to, to the same kind of thing. So I'll just remind you of some NHS principles. These are taken from the uh, NHS operating framework for 2007 to 8. And when I read them, I thought, hmm, that would be nice. The NHS will provide a universal and comprehensive service with equal access for all. Well, it's clearly not equal access because it leaves out trans and it probably tends to leave out GLB people as well. Interestingly, one of the earlier slides mentioned the ability to pay because the richer you are, the smoother your transit tends to be. I wasn't abused and harmed by the health service in my day because I was able to pay. I was able to organise my own care. And as far as possible, I stayed as far away from the health service as possible. We will help help keep people healthy and work to reduce health inequalities. Well, that's not happening for trans people. We'll treat every patient with dignity and respect. Yes, please. We will shape our services around the needs and preferences of individual patients, their families and their carers. I didn't mention families. For every trans person, there there are two parents. There may be children. There may be brothers and sisters. So even if you only believe that there's about 5,000 trans people in the world, and it's probably more than that in the UK, then there are maybe four or five times as many family members who also need to have support. And if you haven't a clue how to treat the trans person, how are you actually going to support the family member? You're going to say, oh dear, I'm so sorry you've got a pervert in your family. We're committed to equality and non-discrimination well. But as I said, the resources are available. 
we're knee deep in them now. We've gone in two years um, under my chairing the um, transgender work stream and the sexual orientation and gender identity advisory group. We've gone from nothing to um, nirvana, really. An enormous amount of information. Please use it. Please make sure it gets into the right hands. Please ensure that people get the message. Look at those logos on the top, NHS and Department of Health, that this isn't something on the outside. This is mainstream. And there's some basics, and this is the last slide. You know, treating people with respect, maintaining their privacy. Because if you don't maintain their privacy, if you give away my details... I will use Section 22 of the Gender Recognition Act and I will see you in court with a £5,000 fine and a criminal record because that's what it involves. I hate to sound aggressive in that respect, but privacy is important. When I choose to out myself to you today, that's my choice. If you go out of here and you out me to somebody else without my permission, that's abuse. I'll leave you with some links, and do we have some time left for questions? I'm very sorry if I've overrun.